2017, first Life in the Peloton podcast, and I've been thinking about it, who I could get for the first one to start the new year up. I thought, who better to get than the household name, Australia's, one of Australia's best cyclists and still in the game, Simon Gerrans, my teammate. I'm rooming with him here at Cadell Evans. We don't often get to room together, actually. Um, So I thought, shit, I'm in the room with Simon. Great. We've got some time this afternoon before the race. And um, I thought I'd get you to sit down with me and have a chat on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, buddy. It's an honor to be on here. <laughs> Listen to many, many of your previous podcasts. And so, uh, yeah, to uh, debut 2017 with Life on the Peloton, he said it's an honor. Your wife is a big fan, so a bit of a shout out to Rana, who will be listening to this, no doubt. Big fan of yours. That's right. And <laughs> the <mine> podcast. <laughs> Um, well, Simon, he's entering his 13th season as a pro, which is, I was counting the years up. Um, I raced with Simon way back in 2005 in his first year as a pro. And I was trying to think back then, I was like, oh, it's not that long ago. And I was like, well, hang on, that is a long time ago. Um, and what, one thing I wanted to talk to you about today was the Australian season. We're right in the middle of the crazy Aussie summer of racing now that's happening. Um, and I, one thing I've noticed, even in my, I'm in my eighth year racing, and I've noticed a massive difference to what it used to be back then. It used to be a bit of fun. You do the Bay Crits, they were really hard, you know. And Down Under was was a great race to race, but it was a different race too. There's still a bit of fun about it. But now, you know, the Australian summer, it's so important in the whole season, actually, especially for our team, Green Edge. Um, how do you see it compared to those old days? Compared to now. Yeah, it's definitely all business these days. I think, you know, when I first turned professional and, and in sort of my amateur seasons leading into the Australian summer, I always took, took this racing really seriously. It was, a, it was a good opportunity in your amateur days to, to perform and to race against the Aussie professionals when they were coming back to Australia for their, for their pre-season. And then uh, when uh, I got started to it and under, it was an opportunity to impress the, mm. the European directors of these pro teams that we were sort of dreaming about racing with. Um and then sort of once I turned professional, I sort of always made the point of I've got an ideal way to prepare for these races in the, in the Australian summer, um, had a big advantage over the Europeans that were coming out that maybe weren't treating the races quite so yeah. seriously. Um, so I really made a point of targeting, targeting them. Um, but I think kind of looking back over the years from 2008, it got really serious yeah. uh, since the World Tour came in, basically yeah. the Pro Tour back then. Um, all of a sudden, the, the the dynamic of the race has changed completely. Uh, guys weren't enjoying themselves off the bike quite so much anymore. <laughs> they were looking after themselves because everyone was trying to perform at a high level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I've definitely noticed the difference, especially. And then you know when Lance came out and did the tour, tour down under. I'm talking about things went up a level with the crowds, and now you know every second person I speak to in Australia knows tour down under. Um, so it's a great thing for cycling, yet it makes our job very hard over the Christmas time <laughs> when you want to have a few more. Well, it means we're not relaxing quite so much at Christmas time. And I think since, uh, since Green Edge came along too in, in 2012, um, these were you know big races for the team. Uh, we don't often get the chance mm. to, to race in Australia. So for an Aussie team, these races became really, really important. Mm. Yeah, and even the Sun Tour, like the Sun Tour nicknamed the fun tour at one point used to be at the end of the year in october and sure it was still a difficult race but i throw out there that maybe half the peloton were there for racing the other half were there to participate and you had a good time for some some tough races but now it's thrown into this aussie summer it's in february now 
next week for us and um it's a solid little race and you know this year it's it's got a really solid parkour chris Froome's going to be there um tour de france winner and you know it's a it's a tough race isn't it oh well when you look at the the course on the stage one already we're finishing up falls creek and that's one thing but then when you're racing against a three-time tour de france winner and then you know we have esteban obviously on our team who's podiumed in two grand tours mm. uh last year the level of racing or the level of the races is as good as it gets so mm. it's going to make it a, a, a tough little race it is tough for us too no doubt we're going to have our work cut out you'll be looking for a stage there no doubt esteban trying to protect him in gc so it's going to be a tough race. But anyway, that's not exactly what I wanted to talk to you about. So seeing as we're here, we might as well give that a little plug because um, it might get a little bit overlooked, I think, the Aussie season, um, how tough it really is. But what I did want to talk to you about today was um, one thing I've admired from your career along the way, because like I said, we, we met early on and then I was always looking at you, um, what you were doing and how you were progressing along. And I see in 2004 you sagied with Aegisoir, the French outfit, and you know the following year you were contracted to them in 2005. And the way I sort of see it was, it was a, an amazing Neo Pro breakthrough year. Not that your results weren't great before that; you obviously had to have great results to get to turn professional. But often when guys turn professional, they have a bit of a slump year where they're just finding their feet. But you know, you rode your first Tour de France then in your first season, pro, which is a massive feat, um, and then finished third in the stage there, which was amazing too, and then came back and won your home tour, the Herald Sun Tour, um, which also rolled on to an amazing win down under that following summer. Um, so it was an amazing, like, okay, I'm in the I'm in the world tour, bang, here I am, here I'm Simon Gerrans. And then following that, there was a bit of a trickle along of some some great results and finding your feet again. And I, from the outside, sort of see 2009 as a pinnacle year again. You're in Cervelo then, and you won a stage of the Giro, a stage of the Vuelta, and the one-day race, Plouay, in France. And I see that as a as almost like a switch, where it was like, okay, I was I was a rider who was doing well, and when I got chances, I got good results. But then you change from that point on to a rider then who was expected to win big races when you're in them. Um, that's what I sort of gauge from the outside. Is that correct at all? Or is, is that something that you sort of saw in your career? Is that how it's happened? Well, I kind of think from um, from when I first turned professional in 2005, I kind of had a nice steady progression there for a few years. Um, when I first turned pro, I was setting my sights on winning races that I thought were quite achievable to win and I was really fortunate I got plenty of opportunities with AG2R we did a lot of small races French Cup races and the likes uh, the team gave the opportunity to for me to come back and, and race the uh, the Sun Tour at the end of my first season professional and mm. uh, which we did with a, a few guys in the team then we got the likes of yourself to, to come along as stagiaires to, mm. to make up the numbers which was really cool so I got plenty of opportunities in my first couple of years just to let me cut in on that point I always remember this because Simon and I rode together there and I was just a guest rider and I remember catching up with his French teammates there and they were a bit more on the fun tour side of things and um, I remember speaking to them and they're like, oh, no, 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 Simon, you know, oh, we've we've stopped sort of training the last few weeks but he's been, you know, full gas and um, was that a point that you remember always the Sun Tour was a big thing and you're over in Europe and just going, you know what, I'm going to come back from Europe and I'm going to fire in the Sun Tour. Is that the fire in your belly at 
back then? Oh, the, like I always held the Sunter in such high regard. Yeah. You know, it was a race we always worked towards um, in the seasons leading up to that when I was amateur, when I did, uh, you know, the short period of time I did racing in Australia, the Sunter was always the pinnacle of the season. Yeah, it was. So I had the utmost respect for this yeah. race, so there's no way I was going to come back and race it with anything but, you know, full, full seriousness. Um, so, yeah, that's why, you know, I wanted to, to try and come back and, and, and win that race at the end of the season. But that was sort of a fantastic stepping stone mm. because it was a race that I targeted and I was able to win it. Um, and from then on, I think the, the pressure kind of built over the years because um, I sort of uh, earned this reputation of hitting my targets. When I said I was going to aim for a race, I'd generally come in there and if I didn't win it, I'd go close. Or I'd be super competitive. And time and time again, when you start doing that, all of a sudden when you or the the media get hold of that you're targeting a race, then you're talked up and there's a massive amount of expectation. Mm. And then there's a completely different mindset. When you're going in as an opportunist, there's not a lot of people that are sort of expecting you to do well, and you do. It's a massive bonus. There's mm. high fives all around. Everyone's happy. When you go in and you're expected to perform, there's a whole different pressure. Mm. Um, obviously, you have the, the hype of the media talking about you uh, targeting this event. Then all of a sudden, you know, there's pressure within the team and, and you know, your contracts get soon become based around these results and all these sort of things. So, yeah, the dynamic of, of racing these races and, and the mindset definitely changes. Over when, was that, when was that point then? Like, was that always from the start when you started riding with AG2R? Because I can imagine coming on as an EO pro, they didn't expect you to do those kind of results. Or was it not until later that point at Cervelo 2009 when you won the two Grand Tour stages that people started to go all right, when this guy says he's going to do something, that expectation lifted? Or was it around that period or was it before? Or No, it was probably only in the last few years of my career, yeah. actually. Probably, okay. probably only with uh, with this team. Um, like I said, I think I made a pretty good progression for like right up until through Cervelo, the You know, I sort of set my sights on bigger and bigger races um, every time until I was aiming to win Grand Tour stages and, and classics and things like that. Um, and then I was sort of signed up to Sky and they mm. wanted me to kind of develop from this from this one-day rider or this guy that could target classics to targeting stage races. Um, and it didn't really work for me, you know, and I can't put my finger on why I didn't have uh, fantastic results at Team Sky. I learned a heck of a lot in that organisation. I learned about, you know, uh, attention to detail and everything like that. Um, and But it was only once I got out of that, uh, that team and into Greenedge, as it was for the first year, that um, I found my niche again. I found myself targeting uh, like one-day races or races that really suited my capabilities, mm. and 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 found a whole new level in my career. Mm, interesting. Like, and the thing, like, what, I wanted to ask you about when you were just saying before about that expectation, and you you brushed over that pretty pretty easily because you've come to terms with that now, and that's something that. I certainly do struggle with um, for the, the little opportunities that I do get when I say that I'm good, you know, it's something that I, I'm like, oh shit, you know, these guys are expecting me, it's been written up about me in the, just even in your little team goals or whatever and even just the teammate expectation, I know you guys will always back me up if I give 100% but that's something that I deal with and I'm sure a lot of guys deal with. How did you go, how do you deal with that? when it's much more than just the team and things like that it's the media it's you know it's someone going look mate we're paying you this much you need to do this this and this how have you come to that moment where you can just put it out of your head and just race or you don't put it out of your head you just deal with it is it yeah i'm not sure you put it so much out of your head but you just try and focus on the things that you can control yeah and and go back to making sure you're 
doing every single thing in your control and your preparation and, and making sure you're as, as ready to go for this race as you could possibly mm. be. And that's a matter of, you know, checking all those boxes in training with your equipment, um, having knowledge of your competition, of your teammates, and doing everything that you can. Um, and I think when you know that you've done everything you control, that gives you confidence. Mm. Um, and I think the other thing that gives you confidence is um, your, your past results, your history. You know, if you've performed uh, when, you've, uh, when you've done all those things, if you do them all again, it gives you confidence to know that you're going to perform again. And, and um, I was really lucky when I first came to this team that there were a couple of old heads in the team mm. that I really turned to for, for advice, and they were the kind of road captains. Yeah. Um, and they had plenty of confidence in, in me to perform. Guys like Stewie and Robbie and guys like that, yeah. which were you know my idols early on in my career, yeah. to have them as teammates and saying, no, man, you can do this. We know <laughs> that you're good enough. You can beat these guys, and we're going to support you. That sort of that sort of brings you up a whole nother level as well. Yeah, I, I, I definitely had the same feeling at a, at a race when, you know, I think it was Impy, he said to me, mate, I'm not going to be able to do the lead out for Gossier today. You're going to have to do the lead out for Gossier. I was like, I'm no way, I'm ready for this. Stewie said, mate, you're on my wheel, follow me, I'm going to get you to the finish. And it seems a simple thing, he's my teammate, of course, but I remember riding around being a little bit in awe, like, well, Stewie is protecting me and he thinks that I'm good enough for the job, so... I naturally lifted for the occasion because he had faith in me and um, I can really relate to that that exact situation that you were saying then. Um, there was something else I wanted to ask you too and it's something I've really admired um, and I've tried to take on myself is it's typical you come into a finish, you see things naturally happening and your natural instinct is someone attacks, your goal was to sit and wait for the sprint it's 800 metres to go. A guy goes, you're like, shit, I'm good enough to win this today. But my plan is not to follow that move. My plan is to win this in a bunch sprint. The guy goes, and I've seen you just wait there. Patient as all hell. The guy comes back, you win the sprint, right? It seems very easy now, but in that moment when you're feeling good and you know you can win and someone throws something into the mix, throws a cat into the bag and you're like, well, and your natural instinct is just to follow that and just throw your, your plan out the window and just, and then all of a sudden you'll get beaten. You know, that's the typical thing that happens. But what I love about you is that you just like, you know what, I'm, I'm willing to lose this as much as I am to win this. That's the feeling I get. Um, is that, is that true actually? Or is it something that I'm sort of imagining? No, I think you, you're, you're spot on there. You actually, when you're in that kind of situation, you've got to be prepared to lose, yeah. to win a lot of the time. And, you know, there, there are many, many times it hasn't gone my way. You look yeah. at the national championships this year when uh, Miles attacked yeah, with exactly. uh, a bit over a K to go. Um, if, and if we had caught him, you know, I won the, the sprinting. If you had jumped place. across, someone would have been in your wheel, exactly. you would have been beaten for second again. I would have given someone a perfect lead out. So yeah. you've just got to be prepared to lose a lot of the time. And when you do lose in that situation, all you got to do is t- take off your hat to the guy that's won. It's like, well, you put it out there, you won, and and you earned that win, and mm. I was only good enough to run second. And um, look at my career, and I've had a couple of pretty big second places. Um, but you can't lose yeah. sleep over them because uh. you go in with a plan, uh, and you go in you know, with a mindset of how you're going to do it. A lot of the time, you've got to be very dynamic, and you've got to go, okay, plan's out the window, you've just got to race this. Mm. You know, but when you come to those dying moments of the race, and you know what your trump card is, you just got to sit on it. You've got to play it when it comes up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what it comes down to a lot of the time in that situation is just instinct. You mm-hmm. just, you're not overanalyzing the situation. Like I've analyzed many, many <laughs> race finishes, and it's always good to analyze it in hindsight, thinking, 
okay, what would I have done? Could I have done differently? How could I have won that race? Or why did I win that race? And really have a good think about that. But once you're out there and once you've got your number on your back and you're in that environment, all you do is react. You don't mm. think. Yeah, and it's two good, really two good instances that I wanted to talk to you quickly about was, you know, World Championships a couple of years ago, you're in the, the finish with two Spanish and a Portuguese and um, Rodriguez, he attacks, and you wait there, and oh, oh no, um, who else was there? Um, um, Nibali was there, wasn't he? And Ponferrada in the yeah, Ponferrada. Um, and it was this. It was this point anyway. It was this point. I can't remember the exact finish, but it was this point when there was a point. Rui Costa attacks the Portuguese guy, and um, it's like, well. You know, I could attack across him this situation and potentially pull Valverde across and he would win the sprint. Or you go, you know what? You're going to have to pull it back. And ultimately, you won the sprint there. Um, and, you know, he stayed away for the win. But on the flip side, another race I think of is San Remo. And you had Kenchelara there. And it's like, um, I'm just going to sit here, mate. I'm not pulling through. And, you know, potentially we could get caught, you know, and played the bluff there. And I was just sitting there going, oh, he's, he's got to, you know, he's got to help him. He's got to help him. But potentially you could have given the victory away. And that, that patience right then was just like, uh, even I was just nervous on the TV watching it, you know, and it was just, it was amazing to watch. Like what was going through your mind at those points? Can you remember them? Yeah, they're two very different scenarios and two very different races. Uh, with with San Remo there, I was able to follow a move uh, or go directly with a move from, from with Nibali on the on the podio, yeah. and timing rise it just worked out well. We we had a discussion, Gossie and I, leading into the to the podio, which is the last climb, of the last the race. climb of the race. He was uh, and he was our leader, and I was sort of Plan B. I was there to support him in the dying stages, mm-hmm. but he, he wasn't up for it. Um, it was for me to have a go, and he said to me into the bottom of the podio, he's like, "Mate, I'm no good. Go for it," and I was like. Okay, I'm ready to go. I yeah, you know, had a good race. I was in cracking form. Uh, I knew the finish of the race like the back of my hand, and I positioned myself in the right point to attack on the Poggio. And the, like a split second before I was about to attack, Nibbly went. So I was there in the right gear, ready to go, so I could react immediately to uh, and get on his wheel. Um, and we got an initial gap. I've pulled through, and then I look around, and Cancellara's on the wheel, mm-hmm. and. Cancellara is just such a proven performer at classics. You know, he'd won San Remo, I don't know how many times before that. He was He's like the Goliath of mm. classics racing, as you know. Um, so to all of a sudden to have him there with us, it's like, okay, all, I've got, all of a sudden I've got someone here who can't afford to lose this. Exactly. He's got to win this yeah. race. So basically he did everything in his power to try and, to try and drop us. Um, attacked us out of every corner of the descent of the Poggio got to the bottom nearly dropped us because I messed up one corner I yep. managed to fight back onto his wheel and then it was just about a K to go He, after attacking us so many times he's flicked the elbow um, I've shaken my head because all of a sudden all this whole time you know he doesn't know that Gossie's no good mm. Gossie was that trump he card he just thinks he is yeah, yeah. and Gossie's uh, Gossie was the, the winner the year before so I'm like you know I've got Gossie behind you know I don't have to ride with him <laughs> So he's, he's attacked us once more, and then he swung up the road. Yeah. Like, he's called our bluff. And I'm like, okay, well, I've got to keep the momentum going. If I swing up the road, the bunch is breathing down our necks. We're yeah. going to get caught. So I rolled through, and I kept the momentum going. Okay. But I didn't roll through and give a 100% turn because I knew what was coming. As soon as I 
do a turn, uh, someone's going to attack you. And he went straight over the top again and attacked again. Yeah. Um, and after that attack, you know, I fought back onto his wheel again. And then all of a sudden, we're within 500 metres to go. Yeah. And he's flicking his elbow as much as he likes. I'm not going through <laughs> with 500 metres no to go way. at the end of Milan San How Remo. close were they behind, actually? I can't remember now. Well, you know what? In the fact that I was, wasn't paying any attention to that, I knew that they would be close. They always are close in San Remo. But they nearly sprinted onto the back of us. They mm. were that close behind us. But um, Cancellara, he then sort of started to wind up his sprint. And he hasn't got a super explosive sprint, but he's got a long one. Yeah. So I sort of laid off him a little bit because I had Nibbly on my wheel. Yeah. I've given him a length of two as he's wound up in his sprint. And then he's kicked. Oh, shit. And that one length kind of turned into two lengths, it felt like. So I had to give, obviously, everything I had to sort of come at him in his slipstream, get off his wheel and, and get over him for the win. And I think the... The bunch, uh, the bunch kick was, you know, Degenkolb and Sagan and guys like that that were literally right behind us. So in that situation, you know, the fact that I was with someone in Cancellara that couldn't afford to lose the race because he's, you know, he's he's the man when it comes mm. to those races and there was no expectation on me whatsoever. And he um, would not probably thought he had you wrapped up even in the sprint, maybe. Yeah, you know, like, ah, oh, Gerens, yeah, he's a bit of a climber. I can probably wrap him up in the sprint, you know. Yeah, the one thing, you know, about Fabian, he's, yeah. he uses confidence and he yeah, thrives exactly. on that. Yeah, so yeah. he would have been super confident that he was going to win even after leading out the sprint, even after us attacking us 20 times in the past, you know, four yeah. or five Ks. Um, and he underestimated me was, at the end of the day. Was there any point there where, like, he did swing up and called you bluff that when you did roll through, you're like, shit, I could potentially get giving the victory away here if I don't do something, that they're coming? Or you were just like, you know what, if they catch us, they catch us. You weren't, like you said, you weren't desperate like he was for that victory. Or No, I think I knew that if I didn't go through, we were going to lose the momentum of the breakaway, and I had to give him something. Mm. Um, and that's what I did, because... Before that, he was pulling at 55k an hour and flicking mm. his elbows. Like, you know, I'm stuck to the wheelie. You're going so fast, I can't pull at this speed anyway. But when he flicked the elbow and swung up the road, I just kept it going. I mm. kept the, mo- the momentum going. And like I said, before I was hurting too much from pulling th- at that speed, um, I was swinging up and let him come through mm. so he could get back on his wheel again before he attacked us, mm. you know, for the 20th time. <laughs> so the Milan San Remo victory was very was a very different environment to the to the world titles because uh, in Pontferrata because at San Remo, San Remo it was like there was no expectation I was yeah. like I think someone told me I was paying like a hundred bucks to one yeah to, right to win that race there was no expectation whatsoever fast forward to the 2014 World Championships at, at Pontferrata I was the odds on favourite yeah you right. know I was you know clearly the mm. the guy on form and there was a massive amount of expectation. To, to win that race um, and uh, and then sort of in that final it was Katowski got away uh, in an unexpected attack on the descent oh, before yeah, the last sorry, climb sorry of course and, yeah. um, and he slipped away and we were still a fairly large group behind um, and you know everyone had numbers there I had a couple of teammates one that was cooked one that didn't contribute to the chase and then the attack sort of kicked off on the last climb and I had great legs so it sort of followed an attack from Gilbert, jumped it, followed a menial attack from Valverde, and then all of a sudden pulled across the top and we were in a select group. Um, but it was all it was all too late because Kutowski mm. had a little bit too much time and, you know, ended up with one of those big second places that, that really hurts. Yeah, that's right. And this and exactly what you said before, like that moment in San Remo, they're those ones that, that pay off and they're, they're, there's other ones you just go, you know, you've got to be willing to, you know, to lose this to win it and that's, 
like I said to you, it's something I really admire because even um, a guy who's led you out a few times um, for a few of your victories, Daryl Olympia, our teammate, and he's someone I look to again for, um, yeah, in, in influence. He influences me a lot. He just waiting, waiting until that moment. He knows that, you know, for instance, there's a sprint that you've beaten Peter Sagan in that he was leading out you out in. And I watched that and I think if Impey had gone, you know, 50 metres earlier where I would have, I was watching it going, go Impey, go Impey, and now go. And those three times I said go, you wouldn't have won the race because that lead out just had to be perfect. It's just mm-hmm. having that that calmness in that final period when you've when it's easy not to be calm um, to get these victories. And yeah, I think you look at Dale and he's obviously one of the best in the business at doing mm-hmm. that. And he's such a reliable teammate, and he's uh, he's helped me and been such a big part of so many of my you know great results over the past few years. And he's a guy who really rises to the occasion when you know someone's relying on him, mm. and he does it time and time again. If uh, Daryl and I uh, teamed up, and we're at a race, and he knows I'm targeting that race. I know he's going to be there for me in the final, or do that crucial, you know, pull into the bottom of the climb to set up an attack, or just a lead out for the final. He's 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 Mr. Reliable when it comes to that. So, and he's got a and he's got a cool head, mm, um, really cool head. Yeah, in a race environment, he's got a cool head. He's not always a cool head. But no, when he's, he's typical uh, South African. He's, he <laughs> can be cool and then just completely exploding. Yeah, but uh, yeah, he gives his all, and uh, and you know, I've got a lot to thank him for over the years yeah well just fast forwarding now to um probably been asked this question a lot at the moment but i feel like you're in another little transitional period um and i feel like you've done a little bit of everything in your career you know you started off like we said those results early on and then went through the sky period where you try to be a stage race rider um and then you when you came to green edge you were you know so successful not that you weren't good at small stage races either but really successful at the one-day sort of Ardennes races and the one-day classics. And now you're at this uh, later part of your career. What are you sort of seeing yourself as at the moment? Is there, a, is there a transformation, a final transformation for you as you look at the last part of your career now? Um, I think uh, just as the way my career has been evolving, I've kind of come from, you know, being a, a teammate and an opportunist to, you know, a team leader where I was really relied on to, to get big results and these days, I still probably have seen as a, as a team leader because there's certain races that I'm mm. sort of looked to to get the result for the team. But as uh, Green Edge has evolved over the couple over the last few years, and we've developed this young talent, I'm kind of seen to more at more as a as a road captain, and I think more as a mentor mm. to these young guys. And even uh, a couple of years ago, when you know I was winning classics and and getting consistently results at the, at the highest level. Um, I always saw my role or my most important role in the team is to try and be a good influence and really mentor the, the young guys coming through the team because I saw 10 times more talent in these young guys than I ever had. Mm. So I thought if I can be a bit of a positive influence on their career, they're going to produce so many more results than I've ever been able to achieve or could dream to achieve. So I think you know that role is becoming more and more prominent to be a, a road captain, um, be the, the guy that Stewie was to me a few years mm. ago and, and guys like that and really try and help uh, these young guys sort of fulfill their potential. So is that something like, we just something that we've sort of covered, but is it letting them understand that cool head that you need in the race or is it also the physical side of things? You know, look, 
even though you might think you need to do this, this, and this training, you need to look at it this way. Or when you come into a race, you need to approach it mentally this way. Is that sort of the advice you want to give, or is it more just the psychological side of things you want to portray? No, I think it's more, um, you know, I try and basically influence them to be good leaders Mm. and really, you know, do everything that they can do to be the best bike riders they can, to take care of their teammates, to respect the the staff within the team, Mm. you know, that are such a big and important part of our our success. Um, And just to do all those little things, you know, make sure they're checking all those boxes. Um, And if I can sort of help them become better leaders, then they're going to get much better results. Um, Just a simple thing of having, you know, respect from their teammates. If they really respect the the teammates and are really thankful for the help they get, Mm. next time they line up, these guys are going to turn themselves inside out for them. If they don't have that respect... Uh, from their from their peers within the team, people won't won't uh, you won't get the best out of your teammates. No, it's just some some really simple things like that. So uh, yeah, I think that's uh, that's probably the most important thing to pass on. Mm, yeah, nice. Well, that's uh, been a nice little insight. We won't linger on too long today. Um, I guess I did want to ask you now. I want to bring a couple of questions in to these potties again. Um, there, last time I I did do. Um, what's your favourite drink? Just to sort of give a little insight into you. What, like, I'm a bit of a beer drinker. Have you got into the, the beer drinking scene in Melbourne or are you a bit more... What are you? What is your favourite little... Coffee. Yeah, right. Coffee's my vice. Yeah, you know, I'm a coffee drinker. I drink way too much coffee probably that's that's healthy. Um, have a nice coffee machine at home and, you know, wherever I'm out, it's, it's, it's for coffee. So... Um, yeah, that's probably my, my drink of choice. Well, run me through your coffee, your daily... Like, so I've got a daily sort of coffee ritual. It might start off with, like, a couple of um, batch brews, so just black filter in the morning, and maybe I'll get, like, a milk coffee out when I'm riding, and then post-lunch will be maybe another a filter or espresso, and then maybe afternoon will be a espresso again, or maybe after dinner, another espresso. That's sort of my... I don't like to drink milk later on in the day. What's what's your sort of routine? No, I stick fairly largely to the milk coffees apart from when I'm on tour and we're making coffees in the, in hotel rooms because mm. you're, you're obviously not going to carry a carton of milk around your suitcase. So then it's it's kind of black coffee. Uh, when on stage races, I've got this you know this electric mocha set up where I can make a, a good strong coffee in, in the hotel room. But apart from that, when I'm, particularly when I'm here in Australia, it's very much uh, milk coffees yeah, all day long. Pretty much, yeah. I try and shut it down, you know, after about five or five o'clock at night, um, just for the quality of sleep you get. Like I could probably drink a coffee and go to sleep, no problems. But um, I don't think the quality of sleep's quite as good if you've had a coffee before you go to bed. Yeah, no. Let's tell that to my old man. He's a big man to drink coffee at night. Yeah, great, mate. Well, um, thanks for coming on the podcast, and um, good luck tomorrow, mate. Thank be you. Be out there with you. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks yeah. for having me. Sweet. got a little extra thing here we're gonna do start a live we're gonna check the connection we're doing live tracking this is like the the pause after the podcast and then for those those diehard listeners that stay listening for a few minutes they come on you're live now all right so we're live hey here we are life in the peloton we're recording podcast but we've got actual footage 
So anyone want to send some questions in to us? So far, we've got no one watching. Anyone coming on? Oh, yeah, know? we do. But no one's... Here we go. We've got eight people watching. Eight people watching. There is we there are. any questions for us here now? And we can put this on the podcast. So this is for life in the Peloton. When are you going to release this, mate? Um, Pressure's on now. You say you got to do it. you got to back it up. I'll do it before the sun tour. Before the sun tour, the next couple of days. Too Ask late. your questions. I'll be on the podcast in a couple of days' time. Who's listening here? Jer, do you want to say anything, mate? I can see you. Come, come, McIntyre. Shoot a question. No one yet. Um, They're thinking. Yeah. Okay, why don't you just tell them briefly what we just spoke about. How do we get Gero to grow a mo? <laughs> you give me about 12 months, probably. <laughs> give us a full view of the mullet. Yeah, right. There you go, guys. What do you reckon, Gary? What's that? To get a mo. To, from a, if I started now, I'm probably ready for Movember. I actually wanted to do um, a mo for the whole team. Like when we do a grand tour, yeah. then we just are like the band of brothers mo's. Yeah. You I'd know, have to like, get one of those sticker ones. No, you wouldn't. You could grow a good mo. <laughs> I'd look like a, a little Mexican. Maybe Esteban and I could be matching mo's. Um, yeah. So Go with the mo, Gary. Yeah, I don't think so, Cam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, it's interesting. It'd be good to uh, get this going. Thanks, mate. We'll um... thank you, buddy. Hope you're going to be down here with the girls. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, any questions for the podcast, guys? Come on. Yep. What else would you like to hear? What, what else would you guys like to hear on the podcast? Well, come on. Nothing doubt yet. We got. There's the, mu- the mic. This is the new mic. Hopefully, it's going to be much better than the the last recording situation I had, which was pretty crap. Well, it was a good little tester today. Yeah. You've got, uh, you know, a few people watching here, but no one's coming up with any good questions yet. Maybe uh, we can we'll give plug you thir- this. We'll yeah. give you 30 more seconds. Come on. We can we can plug this uh, app next time. And How do you think you went with Race Melbourne? Well, we did what we could in Race Melbourne. Um, you know, Caleb was our trump card there, so we had to try and make sure we brought it back for him in the, in the final. But... Uh, yeah, we sort of come up a little bit short. We're probably about one guy short uh, in race Melbourne. Tell us about that, Mitch. Unfortunately, I couldn't make that day. It was <laughs> Australia Day, my old man's 70th. So, uh, yeah, you know. More things, to, more things to life than just racing your bike a lot of the time. We all understand that. How was the recovery from Roubaix? Um, the recovery from Roubaix was, it was good. Look, look at my face. It's uh, looking pretty, pretty good now. But um, it was... Not as long as I thought. I thought it was going to be forever, and that's what brought the mow on. So it's it's been pretty good. What do we got now? Who wears the worst aftershave in the peloton? There's a couple of guys that wear aftershave in the peloton. Yeah. It's a bit of a German thing. I think Vockler, also Fockler wears a lot of aftershave. Also, um, Afredo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Afredo, yeah. the yeah, yeah, yeah. FDJ guy. Yeah, he's, I don't think he's there anymore. But um, yeah, Vockler. Big, big aftershave guy, big cologne, and a few of his teammates probably. Why? His, oh, I don't know. The worst people to sit on the wheel is someone with aftershave because you just all you do smell is aftershave. <laughs> it's not. It's not good in a race. All right, guys. Well, um, have a listen to this on the potty if you want, or maybe you've heard it now. So, <laughs> thanks, guys.